Colossians 1, 18-20. Paul writes, I'm going to begin reading it for verse 15. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me again in prayer. Father, we plead for your assistance, that you would give us insight and understanding into your truth, that we'd be able to understand what you're saying, but not just for our minds, that our hearts would be uh, changed by it, that Lord, we would agree with it full heartedly, and that it, that it really would change us, change the way we think, and even how, what we desire, how we feel, it would mold our affections. For, Father, we don't want to just be intelligent Christians. We want to be faithful Christians. And faithful not just in what we say, but in what we do. And how we think. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work through your word to bless your church. And every person that is here. You know the variety of needs and struggles that my brothers and sisters are having. And I pray that you would bring comfort, encouragement, challenge. And admonishment were necessary so that we all might grow in our faithfulness to you. For you are worthy to be worshipped with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the passage before us, Paul presents five definitive statements about who Jesus Christ is. And we, we began looking at this passage last week. And we looked at the first three statements, the first three declarations about Christ, that Jesus is God. Uh, He is the image of the invisible God, it says. Secondly, Jesus is the creator, right? For by him, all things were created. Jesus is also the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. So all three of these statements are really statements about Jesus' lordship over All of creation. He's created it all. And he's Lord of it. And then the last two statements of those five, which we'll look at today, they emphasize Jesus' lordship over the new creation. That he is the ruler of the church. He is the head of the church, it says. And secondly, Jesus is the reconciler of the world. Let's look first of all at that fourth point, the first in your outline. Jesus is the ruler of the church. Verse 18, it it states very clearly that he is the head of the body, the church. And the word head, as you know, it's metaphorical of leadership. We use it in English also. 
Think of a department head of a faculty or a headmaster at a school, uh, the head waiter at a restaurant. The, the metaphor of head is really fitting for Christ because the head is also the center of the nervous system of the body. It's, it directs everything that the body does, both consciously and unconsciously. It receives all the sensory data of the body. And just think this, in the head, you have the four major senses, well, of the five, four major, they're all major, I suppose, four of the five senses are located in the head, right? Sight, it's on the head, hearing, smell, taste, it even has touch, but touch, of course, is throughout the rest of the body too. But the head even receives and processes all of the sensory data it receives. Even in ancient times, the, the critical nature of the head was obvious, right? You could, in battle, hack off somebody's limb. You could wound them even in, in the torso, uh, and yet they could still live. But if you take their head off, like, it's over. There's, there's, there's no more movement that's going to be taking place. And even though through modern science we've learned a lot more about the brain and how the head works, we still know relatively little about it. But we can affirm what the ancients knew, that the head is vital to all the functioning of the body. You have no head, there's no longer any life. And therefore, calling Christ the head of the church is a fitting metaphor because everything in the church depends upon him. Notice in verse 13, Paul calls the church the body of Christ. And we know he calls it that because the church is the physical representation of Christ upon the world. Because Christ is no longer here. Right? He's in heaven. He's reigning in heaven in a glorified body. But the church is his representation. And yet, nevertheless, even though he's no longer here, dwelling upon the earth in the flesh, he still is the head. He did not defer that responsibility to anybody else. He didn't give that responsibility to be the head of the church to popes or to bishops or to pastors or elders. He still remains the one in charge of the church. All other church authorities remain subordinate to Christ as their head. Which brings up the question, how does Christ continue to lead the church then if he's no longer upon the earth? How does he exercise his headship? How does the church know what the head wants? Right? The, the limbs of the body know what the brain wants because it sends information. How does Christ do that today? Well, he does so through one very clear primary way. Through the word of God, he's given us his word so that we might know clearly what his will is for the church. He has provided all the resources and all the instructions that Christians need in order to properly function as Christians and as the body of Christ. Now, Jesus has still appointed lesser authorities to help lead the church, right? Elders and pastors, but their authority is still bound to what the Bible teaches. They really don't have authority outside of that. 
which means that if they teach anything or instruct anyone to do something that is contrary to what Christ has said in his word, they, they, they're no longer legitimate authorities because they're undermining the authority of the head of the church. They're actually in rebellion at that point. And this is why elders are instructed to labor to rightly interpret the Bible and also why teachers are admonished that they're going to incur a stricter judgment because of that responsibility. And, and therefore, if a church's teaching is not being derived from a legitimate interpretation of Scripture, one can safely conclude that that local church is no longer submitting under Christ. Christ is no longer the head of that church. It's whatever's driving the instruction could be the ego of the pastor. It could be just cultural preferences. Uh, What's popular in the media? If a church is not being driven by an explanation uh, of what Christ has instructed, it's no longer submissive to him. And it could be conservative or liberal. But if it's not honoring Christ as its head... It can no longer be called a legitimate church. It's in rebellion. Right? It's, it's, it's like the, the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, right? That, that sprung up was a year or two ago in Seattle that basically just declared itself autonomous from all the other authorities. It wants the benefits of having EMTs, but we're, gonna, we're no longer submitting to the government at large. Right? A church that no longer is following Christ's word is declaring itself autonomous from Christ. And so Jesus, because Jesus is the head of the church, though the church's future is certain. That is the universal church. Christ as the head and remaining head, he will always be the head of the church, will make sure that its purpose will be accomplished. Sure, different local churches might go astray, Others might diminish over time, but the church will continue. So Jesus is the head of the church. He's the ruler of the church, and he remains that. Secondly, it says Jesus is the reconciler of the world. Look at verses 18 through 20. These verses are very dense with theology. But really, they're speaking to one aspect of Christ, that he is the reconciler. It focuses on his ultimate aim in even becoming a man and dying on the cross. It states he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look at verse 20. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right? Christ's ultimate purpose, what this verse is saying, is his ultimate purpose was to reconcile all things to himself, to eradicate sin and its effects. And thus, in verse 18, Christ is called the beginning, the firstborn. Right. The, the, the statement in verse 18 about Jesus being the beginning is, is actually very similar to what Paul said in verse 15. If you look at it and then also in verse 17, 
If you recall, those statements emphasize that he was the Lord over creation. Well, this statement emphasizes lordship over the new creation. And that's clarified in the following phrase, right? He is the firstborn from the dead. The first resurrection from the dead is the idea. As you recall last week, the word firstborn speaks not just to uh, being first in the order of birth, but really it emphasizes his authority. But it, it turns out that Jesus was also the first to rise from the dead. So he is the, 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 the first in authority over the church, but he's also the very first one to rise from the dead. And in doing so, he's bringing about a new order in creation. As you know, that, that since Adam, the earth has been characterized by death, by decay, by disease, destruction, all sorts of violence. But when Christ rose from the dead, it signaled that a radical change was about to take place. A new order of creation had begun. It's just like uh, the, the dawn breaking forth on the horizon after a long night. It signaled that soon death and all of its effects were going to be eradicated. He established eternal life from, in rising from the dead. And, and, and recognize that eternal life is not just about not dying. It's a quality of life. It's a kind of life. It speaks to existing in a, in a world that, doesn't, that nothing even has the flavor of death in it anymore. Death and all of its effects being completely eradicated. No more weeping. No more grieving. No more gloom. No more darkness. No more failure. No more loss. But joy, productivity, energy, life, fulfillment. Jesus being the firstborn from the dead and Jesus being the head of the church, therefore has massive implications upon the lives of Christians today. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks to the resurrection of Christ and its implications on Christians. 1 Corinthians 15 I'm just going to read verses 22 to 27. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom... To God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But the implication is that, that Christians have been promised salvation through faith in Christ. But. Their salvation is not completed. It is eternally secured. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are guaranteed that one day you will rise from the dead and, and you will be separated from Christ never again. But a Christian salvation is not yet completed when they trust in Christ. And that doesn't mean they have more to do. It just means that there's still more to come. 
So even, recognize, even after being born again, Christians still struggle with sin. Even though they're no longer slaves to it. We still have to taste death. Christians die every day in this world. Even though they're no longer bound by death. But when Christ returns, both sin and death will be completely eradicated. That's what this is saying. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first step, the guarantee that the fulfillment of the eradication of all of sin and its effects will take place. It was just the beginning of it, the guarantee of it. And then the next phrase in verse 20 unabashedly declares that his ultimate purpose in doing all of these things is to reconcile the world so that he might be praised. Notice verse 20. In everything, he might be preeminent. Now, that word preeminent refers to receiving the highest honor in a group. Uh, the, the NASB has first place is how they translate it. That's good. It's like having being the captain of a sports team or the, the CEO of a company, the dean of a faculty or the, the king of a court. Christ is to receive the highest praise. In fact, he's supposed to receive all the praise because he is the king of creation. He's the Lord of all creation because Jesus is not merely just another man. He's God in the flesh. Notice the next phrase. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Or God, the, it was the pleasure of God the Father for the, his fullness to dwell in him. Now this phase gathers into a grand climax. All the previous statements about Christ. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator. He's eternally preexistent. He's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent. The point being that Jesus is holy and completely God. Right? More specifically, there, there's no aspect of Jesus or of the Father that Jesus does not possess. He's completely God. Everything that the Father is the Son is. Just consider how all of God's attributes are possessed by Jesus. Jesus is omniscient. Colossians 2.3. Right? It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is also omnipotent. Philippians 3.20. Let me read it to you. Notice what it says about Christ. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. According to the working by which he is, he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Christ is able to subdue all things to himself and he has the power to transform all of our bodies to be completely pure from sin and to live in eternity forever. He has the power to do so. He's also the source of all life. John 1, 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Just like the Father, he's self-existent. Speaks to his aseity is the theological word. John 5.26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to have life in himself. In other words, the Son is the producer of all of life. Nothing lives. Nothing continues to live outside of the power of the Son. He's not merely a man. He's God. 
He's also immutable like God. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's also omnipresent. Right when Jesus, shortly before he ascended from the dead, he told his disciples in giving them the great commission. And he said, lo, I am with you always. None of us can say that. But Christ, because he's God, can. If God fills all in all. If God is everywhere present and fully present. If God fills all in all and the fullness of God is in Jesus, Jesus is God, fully God. Which, you know, one might ask, well, why does Paul emphasize Jesus's deity so much in this? In this uh, paragraph, well, it's because Jesus was also clearly a man. I mean, just think that this letter was written within a generation of Jesus's death. People probably had maybe even within the church had seen him, had touched him had talked with him. They saw that he was real. He wasn't a ghost. He was a real man and he really died. Moreover, consider that the main adversaries that were bringing in false teaching into the church of Colossae were, were Jews who struggled to embrace the idea that Yahweh could even become man, the holy God. How could he be take on sinful flesh? Especially a man who did nothing in his life to overthrow the adversaries. If he really was the Messiah, why didn't he overthrow the Roman overlords? Isn't that what the Messiah was promised to do? Why, would, If he was really God, why would he willingly allow himself not just to be captured, but to be crucified? I mean, would you allow a person to do that to you? Willingly? If you had the power to stop it? If Jesus was God the Messiah, why would he allow himself to be treated that way? I mean, dying on the cross seemed to prove that Jesus wasn't God. But, as you know, Jesus' death on the cross was very purposeful. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't a victim. It was all part of his plan. And what was that plan? To reconcile all things to himself, as the text says. He died in order to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That, that word reconcile that you see there, the Greek word really just means to bring back into order. To fix that which is broken. All right, everybody can look around and see that the world is a broken place. Just turn on the news. This is obvious. Just within our own families, we see it. We feel it. Our own, we feel it every day as we wake up, if you're over 40. And we feel the brokenness in this world. But it's not just broken. I mean, the world is shattered. And there are, there are many different opinions about how this world can be fixed. Some suggest that all we need to do is just give more of the, the experts more control. Let the experts who study in universities make decisions on what needs to be done and have them make laws and we'll just follow their laws. 
Other on the other side, others suggest that, no, we don't need more laws. Let's just let things be. A laissez-faire approach. Right? Whatever will be, will be. Nature and natural processes will just naturally weed out bad people and bad ideas over time. And then the, the good ideas will just be obvious to everybody. Others insist that we need to follow a particular religion or scripture. If we just obey the Bible or the Koran or the Talmud. Others would just suggest let's let's tolerate every idea that's out there. Right? That's going to be more likely to bring out world peace and harmony rather than just insisting on one idea or truth. I mean, if somebody were to ask you, how do we solve the brokenness and all the problems in this world? What would you tell them? I would like to suggest that I don't think any of those will work, even following the Bible. Not because I doubt the authority or the power of God's word, but because none of us can fully obey God's word. We're terrible at it. Even when we want to obey it, we struggle. The point is, the problems in this world are way beyond our abilities to fix. How's that for cheerfulness? But the good news, though, is that even though we can't do a thing to solve the, the brokenness in this world, just the chaos in our culture, the good news is, is that Jesus can. Now, before you roll your eyes at me and think, that just sounds like cheesy Christian silliness. Let me let me explain what I mean. I don't I don't mean that if you if a person just simply asks Jesus into their heart, then all their problems are just going to go away. That things are just going to go from darkness to light immediately because the reality is they won't. Nor do nor do I think that if you just have happy thoughts about Jesus and and do the best you can to obey that in time things are just going to smooth out in your life because the reality is they won't. I don't even mean that if everybody in the world began to obey the word of God, they embrace the gospel. Everybody in the world is truly born again. Even if that were the case and they tried to obey the gospel, that things would be would be all better. Because the reality is they wouldn't be. Because you would still have to deal with death. Sin would still exist. And so people would still struggle with sin. Satan would still be doing his thing. So the point is, is that way more is necessary. Way, way more for life to be fixed. And Christ's plan in taking on flesh and dying on the cross was to eradicate sin and all of its effects, not just to give us a better life. He wants to bring the whole of creation Back into reconciliation with him in complete submission to him. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians 1.10 when he describes God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things together in him, both things in heaven and things on earth. So Jesus came to earth the first time in order to provide a ransom for sin so that we might be freed from this power of sin. And the curse of sin. 
And that all who desire to repent could be spared from God's wrath. But we need to recognize his purposes did not stop there. The work was accomplished in one sense, right? Jesus declared, it is finished. There was nothing more for Jesus to do, but there still was more to come. Its effects still would be seen in the future. It was just the beginning. And when Christ returns, he's going to finish what he started. But we need to recognize when Christ returns, though, he's not going to return and just give the world a great big hug. It's going to look very different. He's going to come as a conqueror. And Christ is going to violently destroy anybody who is not already in submission to him. He is going to destroy his enemies and then subjugate all other people under his feet. We see this in Revelation chapter 19. I invite you to turn there. It's the very end of the Bible. Maybe a few pages before. Revelation 19 begins. This is the description of our Lord's return. John, looking forward to that day, writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what Colossians 1.20 is pointing forward to really is this, this, this period. Romans 8, likewise. And because of the stubborn resistance of man, this is what is going to take place. This must happen. Christ's desire is that all people would willfully submit to his rule and that they would be reconciled before they must be subjugated. God wants all people to repent and believe. And again, we're, we're, we're in, the pat, in the middle of discussing Christ's role of reconciling the world to himself. He wants to reconcile the world. But those who will not be reconciled peacefully must be subjugated. Now, the need for reconciliation really is what's behind... This, this massive longing for justice in our society, and I'd say, well, really throughout the world. The world is full of injustice. And, and Christians especially recognize this throughout history. Because Christians have been subject to injustice for millennia. And Christ, in fact, instructed his disciples to expect such treatment. Even from the wind. So Christ said we should expect such treatment. In fact, what does he say in 1 Peter chapter 2? To you, for you have been called to this purpose. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leading you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Like Christ expects us to be treated unjustly and we should expect it likewise. But we should not be fooled into thinking that we can achieve anything close to justice for ourselves or for other people in this life. Because men cannot just make things right. Men can be pacified. Their anger can be pacified through bribes or promises, temporal pleasures. But they can't really make things right. Because even such offers of pacification are often just used to cover up injustices. Right? We wrong somebody. We forget our child's birthday, so we buy him a video game. So hopefully they forget the wrong that we did. Warlords do this with food. So do dictators. Even employers will cover up their wrongs, their injustice. Give a raise every now and then when they make a mistake. People might forget. But the point is is that the justice really is not resolved. It's just covered up in such cases. And this is true of almost any act of injustice. And we need to recognize this is because sin is not just purely transactional. What I mean is like, it's not like you can just take sin back. Like you take something back from Costco. You buy some eggs... You want to return them, right? When we sin, it's like we've cracked the egg. The egg is broken. You can't put it back together. What's done is done. For instance, let me explain. If you were to murder a person, even if you were to pay a life sentence or even be executed for that murder, there's nothing that anybody can do to bring that person back from the dead. You cannot actually bring about a true reconciliation, true justice. You can't bring about an evenness. Because you can't make up for what's taken place. The loss is permanent. There's no amount of money that can be paid. If a person lies to you and violates your trust, you can't just automatically choose to trust them. You'd be foolish to do so. It's going to take time at best. If you break a person's heart, you wound them severely. There's nothing you can do to erase that hurt. It's taken place. You've wounded them. Even if you give all the gifts and you make all the promises in the world, that wound will remain. And this is the nature of sin. We are helpless. We can't make up for what we have done against one another. But then consider... All the injustices that we've committed against a holy God, that we commit hourly, daily, throughout our lives. And you begin to get a picture of why only God could bring about such justice. There's no way we could pay back such a debt. And every sin must be fully paid for. And can only be paid for through the wrath of God. That's the only way justice can be brought about. Is through God's holy wrath. And that's what Christ accomplished on the cross. For all who would believe in him. But for those who reject that offer. 
of forgiveness, who reject that ransom because they want to trust in their own good works or in some other religion, all that remains is to face the wrath of God because there's no other ransom for their sin. And they eventually will pay their full penalty. I mean, just think, if, if wrongs, injustices against fellow mortals are impossible to pay for, how much more the multitude of sins that have been committed against an infinitely holy God? And brothers and sisters, this is why hell is a place of eternal torment. And Christ, knowing this, knowing because he was God, the full weight of justice that needed to be meted out came and bore that penalty for us on the cross so that we might be justly reconciled. Right? This was proclaimed in the, by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace was accomplished through the cross. Peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through Christ that we've obtained access by faith into this grace In which we stand. And because we stand in grace, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And what he's talking about there is the future. What's coming when Christ returns and brings all evil under subjection and eradicates sin and its effects from from this world. And that's why Christ came to restore creation to its original design. That all creation would worship him truly all their heart soul mind and strength but in order to do this he had to first bring about peace through the cross that was the only way he could bring about peace through god and men with god and men because without his intercession nothing would stand between god and his wrath upon man i mean a person would be far safer Standing in the middle of a freeway with speeding Mack trucks coming for them. Or kissing a person with the Ebola virus. Or standing five feet away from a nuclear weapon that that explodes. A person would be far safer in those three situations than they would be in the coming wrath of God. And the reason being is because those three things would only bring about death. Which would then be over. But the wrath of God is eternal. It doesn't stop. It would never stop. And it's immensely intense. And the only way we could be secured from this wrath, therefore, is to trust in Christ. And so Christ came, again, so we might be saved from the wrath of God, but also, ultimately, To restore the whole creation. To bring this chaos back into order. To restore the cosmos. His plan was to eradicate sin and all of its effects. 
And this is ultimately what is articulated by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Again, turn to the book of Revelation and just notice how this is described in the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. I'll just read verses 3 and 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, For the Lord God will be their light. And check this out. And they will reign forever and ever. Because they'll reign with him. And so in summary, what Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 is teaching us about Christ is that he is the Lord over all creation. He because he's God. He's also the creator of all things and not just the creator, but he continues to sustain all things. And he is also the ultimate ruler in the church as the head of the church. And he is also the reconciler. That was his ultimate purpose to reverse all the effects of Adam's failure and fall. And so in in light of that, let's praise our great sovereign God. Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because you did not leave us in our state of rebellion. You did not leave us in a place of awaiting justice because, Christ, you paid for all of our injustices when you died upon the cross. And so now, Lord, all of our hope is in you. Lord, we recognize that from you and through you and to you are all things and you deserve all of our worship. And so, Father, we want to we want to worship you now, even in our decaying bodies, in a world that still is immersed in sin. We want to worship you in hope, knowing that this is not the end. But there's much more to come. And so, Father, help us to live with greater confidence in your ultimate purposes for us. That we would not lose heart, even as we continue to struggle, and even as we continue to fail, and even as we experience loss. Because we know that our future is secure. Because Christ has fully secured it for us. We praise you and praise these things. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.